Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. I'd like to begin this morning by talking about trees. Trees are amazing, aren't they? We we can't live without them. We know that there are about or there are more than sixty thousand different species of trees. There are billions, if not trillions, of trees on planet Earth. Their presence makes water cleaner. It purifies the air. It relieves us of stress. Some of us need a little tree therapy in our life. Just going out and being in the presence of trees has been known to reduce stress. For me, even just seeing that is, is a peaceful image. I know yesterday we got a little bit of tree therapy, went to uh, one of our happy places, Philbrook, and walked around in the gardens. And it's just good to get outside, to be in nature, to be around trees. Trees are vital to human life and flourishing. Don't worry, this is not a TED Talk on trees. The reason I'm talking about trees is because trees play an important role in the story of Scripture. Just think about some of the important trees in the Bible. We begin in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trees are spoken of as an example, oaks of righteousness. We have fig trees and olive trees, and of course the well-known sycamore tree that showed up on many flannel graphs in the 90s, the one that little Zacchaeus climbed to see Jesus. Let's not forget that the story of Scripture ends in a garden in the middle of a city and there's the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. The image of a tree is a good metaphor for our spiritual lives and it's common because trees put down roots and they bring forth fruit in season. Now many types of trees grow stronger if they're in proximity to other trees. They form a kind of symbiotic relationship and interconnectedness. It allows them to withstand damage from wind and from rain if they grow stronger together. So let's consider a few examples. The first is the giant redwoods in California. You may not know this, but Despite their enormous height, hundreds of feet tall, their root system is relatively shallow. In some instances, only 6 to 12 feet of roots. And that's because they lock together. Their roots grow together. And rather than growing deep, they connect themselves with the other surrounding trees. And so the strength comes in the width and the enormous connectedness of the system of trees. Let's consider the aspens that I know of in Colorado. Again, I didn't know this until this week, but aspens are actually one connected, single living organism. Did you realize that? A a, a grove of aspens. They're even more connected than the redwoods. They're a single, so so one of the largest single organisms, living organisms in the world is a a grove of aspens. I think it's actually in Utah. There are many lessons we can learn from trees, but I want to focus on two concepts in particular as we talk about Psalm 119 today and the Word of God. 
And those two concepts are togetherness and rootedness. Togetherness and rootedness. Like a grove of trees, we grow stronger together. And we are only strong if we have deep and healthy roots, roots that are nourished by the word of God. We must be well-rooted in order to withstand the storms of life in a sin-torn world. And so this is why one of our core values is that we want to ever increasingly become a Bible-grounded church. And this is demonstrated by grounding everything that we believe and say and do in God's Word. There are many places in Scripture that we could talk about this subject, but Psalm 119 is a good one. It's an incredible psalm. It's known as an acrostic psalm, and that's because it's divided into 22 sections, each section beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's what makes it an acrostic. Each section has eight verses. There's two lines each. At 176 verses, it's by far the longest psalm, and it's the longest chapter of the Bible, if you consider the psalms chapters, which is debatable. But in fact, this one chapter, Psalm 119, is longer than several entire books of the Bible some of which we've just studied in our Minor Prophets series. This psalm has received a disproportionate amount of attention over the years, and I think for good reason. Because it's beautiful, it's powerful, and because of its focus. And the focus of this psalm is the Word of God. The psalm over and over again uses a family of terms to refer to God's Word, with terms like word, ordinances, testimonies, laws, precepts, statutes, commands, commandments, all of these referring to the Word of God. This psalm gives personal witness to the multifaceted quality of Scripture. And the journey of reading this psalm is is a bit like looking at a very intricate diamond. The more you look at it, the more you turn it, the different light sources bring out brilliance, bring out facets of the diamond that you hadn't seen before. And God's Word is like this. We can continue to stare at it. We can look at it from different angles, and we will continue to see different aspects of the beauty and truth of God's Word. Sometimes people will have an experience, they'll tell me after church, they'll say, hey, Aaron, did you read my mail? Like, how did you know that this was exactly what I needed to hear? And I say, look, that's that's the Holy Spirit. Applying God's Word, which is timeless, but to your life, some specific situation. And you're seeing some nuance, some brilliance of this diamond that you hadn't seen before, and it was there, but the more you look at it, the more you see the beauty and power of it. This psalm praises God for his word because it's through the Bible that we come to know who God is and we know how to praise him. So this psalm begins in a similar way to Psalm 1, stating that those who walk in the law of God are blessed, or some will say happy, although this term has a lot of baggage to it. So I prefer the term blessed. They're blameless because they walk according to the instruction of the Lord. Now, blameless here doesn't mean they're perfect. None of us are perfect, but when we walk in the ways of God, when we walk according to his word, we are without blame because his word is blameless. It is always true, and it is always the smart and wise thing to live according to his word. This psalm answers the universal human question. How can a person find true happiness, joy, contentment, and peace? This is what every human being is longing for. We're trying to know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live the good life? What is the best possible way to live? When we're in our right mind and we're thinking correctly, this is what we're all pursuing. And the answer is that we live according to God's word. 
We can't go wrong if we do that. This is the best possible way to live. And so the psalm goes on to clarify the scope of what this means. I believe this psalm calls us to what I would call integrated living. Integrated living. Verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his statutes, who seek him with all their heart. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. The psalm is calling for an integrated life. Not just knowing the scriptures, not just knowing God's law, but loving God's law and walking in its ways. So when I was an undergrad uh, at John Brown University, they had this motto, this three-part motto, and it drove us crazy because we heard it all the time and it was just like, okay, we don't to hear it again. But it was head, heart, and hand. And now I can look back and say, that was brilliant. It was very simple. It, it showed us what it means to live in an integrated way, that our head, our heart, our hands, our actions, they would all be living consistently according to God's ways. And this is what the psalmist is calling us to. Notice the language, walk, keep, seek, obey, learn. It's a picture of what happens when we not only read the word or study the word, but we allow the word to read us to interpret our circumstances, to open up our hearts and our lives and ways of thinking and to walk in the way of God. This is the blessed life. It's the truly good life as God defines it. Not without hardship, not without struggle, but it's a life of integrity, to live an integrated life. Now, before we think the psalmist has his head in a cloud, that he's speaking from a lofty ivory tower, we pause in verse 5. Where the psalmist admits, I don't have this all figured out yet. Look, verse 5. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. The psalmist is saying, look, I am just like all of you. Every single one of us are like all of the roads and highways in Tulsa, always a work in progress. Never done. Always under construction. We're a work in progress, but that's where we're headed. It's the trajectory of our lives. And the psalmist makes a strong resolution, knowing he cannot be faithful without God enabling him. And we see at the close of this opening paragraph, bleeding over into the second, a section that demonstrates the partnership, the cohesion between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see, we have this understanding and story, and, and, and the Bible paints a picture that God is in complete control of all things at all times. He's sovereign. It's his plan. It's his world. He's in control. And yet he also calls us underneath that sovereignty that we have an element of human responsibility. We are called to respond to it. And we see this dynamic, this play at work in the language of the psalm. I will obey your decrees. But Lord, I know that I can't do it without you. Do not utterly forsake me. I will seek you with all my heart. But you are the one with the power to help keep me from straying from your commands. Praise be to you, Lord. As I seek you, you are the one who teaches me your decrees. See, as God pursues us, we are called to seek him. As he is the one who teaches us, we are called to desire to know his commands, to place ourselves in that position of surrender, of living into this great mystery of how God is in complete control, and yet he calls us to account. He holds humans accountable. And I think the connecting link for us 
as believers living in the New Testament era is that we have this superpower that I've mentioned before, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who connects this process of understanding the mystery of how God is in control, and yet he calls us to live into his plans and to submit ourselves and to surrender and to respond to all of who he is. The Spirit is the one who actually helps us to live according to the word of God, to live in the way of Jesus. As we continue in this series, I want us to understand the power of together as it relates to each of these aspects of spiritual formation. We began generally by talking about community and what it looks like to be a part of a worshiping community. And then we had a week on prayer, and we talked about prayer and the power of praying together. Last week, we talked about the power of singing and about being in worship and using our different postures to celebrate who God is and to to humbly submit ourselves before God. This week, we're talking about the Word, but specifically the Word as it impacts us in worship with other believers. Because we have the privilege, we know that we should avail ourselves to, to this opportunity to read God's Word on our own, and that's powerful, but that's not the end game. You see, some people say, well, I have God's Word, so why do I need to come to church? Well, because church is like the super habit. It is like the super practice of the Christian faith because it's in worship that we sing the truth of God's word. We pray according to his word. We hear his word proclaimed. We're sent out by his word. We feast at his table. We experience the fellowship of the believers. It brings together all of the spiritual disciplines in one time in one place. And it's in worship that we hear God's word proclaimed. And that's a different thing from reading it. Both are important, but if we want the Word to get down deep into our lives, we need to have the Word saturate us, and there's an important thing to hear God's Word, to place ourselves under the teaching of God's Word, to hear it proclaimed. I believe we hear it differently, and we hear it differently when we're together with other believers. We think about it, we apply it differently. It's, then it's not just an individual thing that we're trying to be faithful to, but it's something that we're responding to together with other people. And the second section in verses 9 through 16, it's under the heading of the word bet. That is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but this word also means house. Bet means house. So the city Bethlehem, Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And this word house is really an image that I think, again, helps us to understand what the psalmist is talking about here. In the second paragraph, it's all about making our heart a home, a bet, a home for God's word to dwell in. And so the psalmist references several practices that have the power and potential to shape our hearts into a home for God's word. Each of these has both personal but also corporate application. The first one is to memorize, to memorize God's word. Verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And with my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Let's all just be honest for a minute. It's good to be honest in church or anywhere. We don't memorize things like we used to. We don't have to. Now, that's not all bad. There's probably things that we used to have to memorize, and now we use our brain power for other things, okay? So I don't forget for, you know, it's not, it's not lost on me that there are advantages to technology and these kinds of things. 
But we used to work on memorizing things a lot more. Remember when I was a kid, we had to memorize our multiplication tables, our division tables. That was a good thing. It's useful in life. We would always play this game around the world where we would go one-on-one and see who could get the flashcard the fastest, and they would get to go to the next person and the next person. If you made it all the way around, you got to go to the treasure box. You guys remember treasure boxes? I don't know what they call them today. But we got to go to the treasure box, and it was great. And I'll just tell you now, I don't get to go to the treasure box anymore because there are a lot of things I don't have memorized. I cannot tell you, I'm admitting this, one of my brothers listens to my sermons sometimes, I know this, I don't know either of my brother's phone numbers. I don't. I can't tell you them. There might have been a point in time when I did. A lot of you, there are phone numbers that you don't know. I do know my spouses. I'm not going to quiz anybody. We don't memorize things like we used to. And, and maybe there are some things that aren't worth memorizing, but if there's anything that is, the top of the list would be God's Word. Now, I get it. Memorizing is hard. It's hard work. It comes more naturally to some than others. I think for some people trying to memorize Scripture word for word, your brain just gets caught up, and it's, you just never get there, okay? If the note card system works for you, great. If an app works for you, great. I want to suggest a related concept that might be a little bit easier for some of you. When I was in seminary during one of our survey classes, our professor would quiz us on themes of chapters. So we just needed to know some of the more important topics in Scripture. We needed to know where we could find those in terms of the book of the Bible and the chapter. A little bit more narrow focus than memorizing Scripture. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't memorize Scripture because that is an incredible thing and go for it. But maybe if you want to try memorizing, familiarizing, working the Bible into your heart in a different way, think about familiarizing yourself with important topics in the Bible and where you can find them, just so you'll know where to go. So the fruit of the Spirit, for example. Galatians 5. Armor of God. Ephesians 6. 1 Corinthians 12. Anybody? Gifts of the Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 13, I know you know that one. Love, right? So the idea here is a different approach to memorizing, familiarizing yourself with the Bible in a way where you can access it, hiding it in your word, or hiding the word in your heart so that it will come out later and you can access it quickly. Verse 13 says to recount the laws of God. You can't recall or recount something that you haven't learned or memorized. We're designed to be able to recall it to ourselves and to others. The Word of God is designed with a certain inflow and outflow. It's like our heart pumping blood constantly, taking blood in, pumping fresh blood out into our body. So it is with the Word of God. We're to take it in, but there is to be an outflow, to recount it, to recall it. And again, that's a partnership between you and the Holy Spirit, right? We know that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of what we've already learned, to be able to recall that. It takes our intentional effort, and it's also a grace of the Holy Spirit. And the goal, according to verse 13, of having the Word in our hearts is right living. It's human flourishing. It's that we might not sin against God. The goal of having that word is that when we are coming towards a cliff, we would know it, we would recognize it, and we wouldn't jump off the cliff into dark places. 
and things that will really take life away from us. The goal of having the word is to protect us. It is to help us to flourish, that we would not sin against God, but instead we would walk according to his design for our lives. The second practice is to meditate. Verse 15. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. To meditate is to pause and ponder. It's part of being human. We all do it, sometimes unconsciously. God created us with this capacity to meditate, to to turn over ideas, to think about things, to ponder them. You may be rehearsing a presentation that you have to give at work tomorrow, or maybe you're rehashing a critical conversation that you had with a spouse or someone else in your family recently. We're constantly meditating. We're thinking about these things all the time. And so it's no surprise that many religions include an aspect of meditation, but the goal isn't always the same. In some religions, the goal of meditation is simply emptying, to clear oneself of toxic ideas or thoughts, to simply be at peace, to be still. And I think that there can be an aspect of self-emptying that can be helpful for Christians, but we should know that ultimately the goal of meditation for the believer is not emptying but filling. You see, if we're emptying, it's to empty ourselves of things that are not true, but to fill ourselves with biblical truth. Not just empty, but to be full. David Mathis writes in Habits of Grace. It's a great book on the spiritual disciplines. He says, Meditation doesn't entail emptying our minds, but rather filling them with biblical and theological substance, truth from outside ourselves, and then chewing on that content until we begin to feel some of its magnitude in our hearts. I love that. Chewing on that content until we begin to feel its magnitude in our hearts. I think there are some Christians who reject the idea of meditation, maybe because of its association with other religions and practices, but I don't think that we're doing ourselves a favor by doing that. I don't think we should let others hijack a practice and therefore we reject it because others use it. I think we should understand what it really means to biblically meditate. And Donald Whitney Whitney in this spiritual classic, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he says this. He says, biblical meditation is deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. This is meditation. And it's something that we do as individuals, but if you think about that definition of meditation, that's really what we're trying to do in small groups and in Bible studies and classes. We're meditating on the Word. We're thinking about it deeply. We're considering what it looks like to apply it. We are praying about those things. That's meditation. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell among you richly. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he what? Meditates day and night. I think that Christians ought to recapture the idea of meditation. I think we ought to not reject it out of fear that we're doing something that is not Christian because it is a very Christian thing to meditate on God's word. We just have to understand the goal and the purpose of meditation. And I think it's the missing link between reading and studying the Bible and applying it to our lives. We have to think deeply about these truths. We have to allow these truths to read us and to reveal layers of our lives. 
Yeah, I think meditation, that's the part when as we're really considering the truth of God's word, we realize that moment of conviction. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not something I do well. That's something I've known. It wasn't a lack of head knowledge. My heart just hasn't caught up with my mind to realize that I need to change. I think that comes in many ways through meditation. And I think meditation really sets us up for the third practice, which is marveling. To marvel at God's word. It says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. We're encouraged to rejoice in God's word, to take great delight in it, to realize how valuable it is. And here's the thing. I don't think that we will truly treasure God's word until we're really putting it into practice. Until we start applying it, it's just a book. It's, it's a concept. It may be a great book that we admire and that we study. But it's when we start to put it into practice and realize that the Bible actually makes sense, that it actually is the wise way to live, that it does fill us with joy and peace and the things that we really want. Until we start putting it into practice, we won't rejoice in it. It'll be a duty. It'll be something that we do because a pastor on stage said we ought to do it or because my mom made me, or because we just feel like it's the right thing to do. No, we will rejoice and we will delight in the Word of God when we realize how valuable it is, and we won't see how valuable it is until we put it into practice. See, that's the chain link. And I think that's the key to maturing and to growing in Christ is when we begin living out these words. And you know, I've, I've just seen, I've seen so many Christians over the years, people that are in three or four or five Bible studies, and that's great. I'm not discouraging that. But at some point, you have to move from just simply studying or talking about the Bible to allowing the Bible to change your life and to shape the way that you live and your interactions and your view of money and your view of people and your view of the world. And that is when you will delight in it because you'll see the true value of God's word. David wrote in Psalm 19, your words are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. How do we get to that place? I think it's a work of God. I think it's by submitting ourselves and placing ourselves under the teaching of God's word. It's by studying it for ourselves. It's by hearing it. It's by praying it. It's by taking delight and joy and marveling in God's word. And what better place to marvel in the truth of God's word than here with God's people? Again, there's, there's a delight that comes when we celebrate who God is and his truth when we celebrate in the context of other people. When we begin to see how the Bible makes sense and is working itself out in the lives of people that we love and care about. That's when we really say, man, maybe the Bible is more than just a good book. Maybe these words really are true. Maybe the Bible actually does tell us the truth. Maybe the Bible does actually, when we understand it rightly, tell a beautiful picture of the story of the world and give us hope of where we're going. That is when we will delight in God's word. One of the great purposes of our worship together is that we would marvel, that we would rejoice, that we would take delight in the Word of God 
which is for us. It's written to us. It's about us. And it shows us the way to truly become ourselves as God created us. What an incredible book that we would ground our lives in it, that we would become a beautiful forest of redwoods whose roots are growing and nourished by God's word, that we would become an incredible grove of aspen trees growing together as a single living organism, the body of Christ, the living, breathing testimony that God is real and that he is a God of love and that he is good and that there is a better way to be human, that we would become those people together. We can only do it together, and we can only do it by the amazing grace of God. Would you join me as we pray about this? Father, we praise you for your word. And there are times when we don't understand it. There's times when when it challenges us, when we don't want it to be true. But God, we know that it is true. And you prove yourself time and time again that your word really is the source of true life. So God, convict our hearts, first of all, Lord, that we would not just study your word as a book, but Lord, we would be challenged by it. We would be encouraged by it, that it would breathe new life into our bodies, pumping life-giving blood and oxygen into our very souls. Lord, we need your word. And we want to understand it. We want to walk according to your ways. So God, we ask for your grace. God, we ask that when we open your word and as we look at your word and we discuss your word, we would take great delight. God, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to connect us to your word. It would help us and grow us and shape us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.